0: Uh, Thank you, Richard, and let me begin just by thanking uh, both Richard uh, and Paul for convening the group, for convening uh, today's uh, session, and for the sequence of fascinating uh, discussions we had within the group. I certainly learned a a huge amount and want today to uh, impart some of what I learned from those sessions with you. Uh, With the essay question that Richard and Paul set for me, uh, which was um, how best we measure uh, what it is the financial sector contributes to, uh, to the uh, economy. My only request, Richard, would be, uh, if I do run out of time, um, don't flash me. Um, a piece of paper touch on the shelf would work just fine. Um, I'm just waiting for my presentation, which I'm hoping is going to land. Um, um, let me start, though, with um, one of the difficulties... Uh, of measuring uh, what the financial sector contributes, as illustrated by events in the fourth quarter of 2008. So um, we all know what happened in, in the fourth quarter of 2008. Um, we had the failure of Lehman Brothers. We had the stresses within uh, AIG. Uh, we had many banks around the world on their knees. We saw the share prices of those institutions Fall around 50%. We saw, in consequence of that, uh, the real economy uh, implode. So, on an annualized basis, GDP falling by about uh, 6% in the fourth quarter of 2008, world trade falling even more dramatically, around 25% annualized over that period. And the talk then, as you know, uh, was of the possibility of a second uh, Great Depression. At the same time, however, uh, that, was the, that was the story. What about the measurement? Can we better measure what contribution the financial sector was making to that meltdown at that time? And if you look to the national accounts in the fourth quarter of 2000, 2008, it paints a wholly different picture. So in the fourth quarter of 2008, what we found in the UK was that the, the gross value added of the financial sector was contributing its largest amount ever, ever on record. We could find that the gross operating surplus of banks was contributing more than ever previously in the UK. You would find that the contribution of finance to GDP was at a record in the fourth quarter of 2008. And the question, one question for today is how do we reconcile this mismatch between the story, the reality, uh, and the national uh, accounts? Do you need to. Ah. I should say this is joint work uh, with Vas Maduros and Simon Brennan. Uh, and I've just said that. <laughs> So what should should we talk about? Let's talk a little bit about, then, how in practice and in practical terms uh, financial sector output is measured in the national accounts. Let's try and decompose that, then, and try and get underneath what is driving uh, that contribution. Uh, Then let's try and make sense uh, of the excess returns to both labor and capital within the financial sector. This is putting uh, alongside one another the productivity miracle, in inverted commas on the one hand, and the possible risk mirage that have caused uh, high returns on the other. And if I have time, I get on to disaggregating those returns. So, let's kick off with what the national accounts tell us. And the, the picture here just looks at uh, real GDP in levels terms. Within finance, that's the red line. and Within the whole economy, uh, that's the blue line. the table just turns that into some uh, some numbers, some growth rates, year on year. And the bold bit here says that, over this long sweep of history from the middle of the 19th century, growth of finance has pretty much outpaced that of the whole economy by a factor of around two, as we might expect given this was a, an era of financial uh, deepening. However, it's plain that within that long sweep of history, there's at least three distinct episodes that can be discerned. The first one From the middle of the 19th century through until the First World War was a period of intense financial deepening as joint stock banks came into place, as joint stock companies grew up, as capital was liberalized, financed, outpaced the growth of the whole economy by a factor of almost four. Then the first, this was sort of the first golden era of finance. We then have an in-between zone from the First World War right up until the start of the 1970s when, if anything, finance underpaced, grew less than that of the economy as a whole. Adair called this a period of financial repression. It was certainly a time of very swinging restrictions on financial activities by uh, financial companies. And then finally, the third era, the second golden era, if you like, of finance from the '70s onwards, during which time uh, the growth in finances uh, outpaced uh, the whole economy by again a factor of almost of almost uh, two, so three uh, distinct uh, zones there. and if you can tell the story in, using different numbers, so uh, the left ch- hand side chart here looks at the, the gross value added of finance relative to the whole economy, uh, sort of the gross operating surplus, and that grew from two percent just after the second World War to around 18% uh, uh, just ahead of the the crisis-breaking. In the U.S. and elsewhere, it's a similar sort of story on a somewhat less uh, dramatic scale. What is going on and how best do we think about the national accounts dimension of measuring the role of finance? Well, if you look at the national accounts, the way that they capture the contribution of the financial sector falls into roughly two categories. So some of the services finance provides, levy a fee. So if you're uh, extending an overdraft or if you want some underwriting undertaken, a fee or commission will be charged. And that makes it pretty simple to measure what it is the, uh, the financial sector is contributing. The harder part, which is categories three and four in Adair's classification, are the whole class of intermediation services. How best to measure the contribution of finance to providing uh, those services. Well, uh, among national account statisticians, the way this is done is by a concept known as uh, FISM. That's financial intermediation services indirectly measured, uh, not especially catchy. And the concept itself isn't especially complicated. In essence, what you do is take a spread, the margin between lending rates and deposit rates, and pre-multiply it, by the amount of uh, the balance sheet. So if you're measuring the, the FISM provided by loans, take a lending rate, you net off a safe rate or reference rate and multiply it by the amount of lending that's done and ditto on the deposit side. And if you do that sort of calculation, which is the way it's done in the national accounts, what you find is that FISM accounts for the lion's share of a national account's contribution over the financial system. So here's a picture of that, the green bits, are the FISM bits. You'll see the, uh, the bar chart for Q4 2008 spiking up. Uh, that's the point I was raising just at the beginning. As you'll see in that case, in Q4 2008, it was the FISM component that was doing the spiking up. Why might that have been precisely the wrong answer? And the answer, uh, the reason for that is risk. So FISM, in essence makes no real adjustment for risk, which one would think is quite a big flaw given that banks are in the risk business. So to take the example of Q4 of 2008, what happened then? The world got a lot riskier. Expected losses on loans and on deposits got larger. Banks widened their spread, and as measured, that would result in FISM rising even though, in some underlying intrinsic sense, it's very clear that the financial sector was not offering any more by way of services to the real economy. In fact, if anything, it was subtracting very materially. Now, there's ways that statisticians are working on to sort of risk-adjust these measures, to risk-adjust the reference rate, perhaps by using market rates rather than a safe rate. If you do that, you can get down from those from that green bar I showed you, you can, you can net that down by perhaps as much as 60% during that second golden era period. But for reasons that are mentioned, even that, in a sense, might give a distorted picture of how much finance was contributing. And the reason for that is if using market price of risk is, we know, at times of boom and bust, going to give a very, very misleading read of the true price of risk. So if the the price of risk is mismeasured in financial markets, even this adjustment will give us the wrong answer. So what I want to leave you with on this national accounts point is that there's a real puzzle uh, and some real work to be done to get us to a better place of measuring just what it is finance is contributing. In other words, adjusting appropriately uh, for risk. Let's take a different cut, then. Let's take a different cut. Let's try and get underneath those national accounts numbers by breaking them down, by decomposing them in a growth accounting framework into their inputs, the factor inputs, capital and labor, and the solid residual, the contribution of total factor productivity. And this is a pretty mechanistic thing, but nonetheless I think it's quite revealing for what might have been going on. So what is the contribution of uh, greater inputs on the one hand and uh, TFP, Productivity uh, on the uh, other. Well, taking first the inputs, this looks at the factor shares, labor on the left-hand side, uh, capital on the right, of finance over time. Two interesting things here. From around 1970 to 1990, um, the financial sector sucked in resources, both labor and capital. Its factor shares rose. However, what happened during the real boom period, during the course of this century, was, if anything, a reversal of those trends. If anything, uh, finance was sucking less labor and less capital uh, out of the economy uh, as a whole. The factor inputs can't come close to explaining why it, why it was finance shot off. Or put differently, uh, the residual explanation we're left with is that TFP, the solar residual... The productivity component in banking, as measured this way, uh, shot up very dramatically. And these two charts speak to that. The left-hand side picture looks at measured TFP in a set of sectors in the UK where financial intermediation uh, stands out as having made uh, the biggest contribution, roughly 2% year-on-year growth. Uh, The right-hand side picture does this on a cross-country, not a cross-industry, a cross-country basis. Look, the deviation between uh, TFP in finance uh, and TFP in the whole economy, and in most of those countries, certainly including the UK, that differential is positive. In other words, measured TFP in finance was somewhat higher, often materially higher, than that in the economy as a whole. So, in making sense of the rising contribution of finance, this isn't a story about factor inputs. This isn't a story about quantities. It must instead be a story about returns to those factors. So let's speak to some of that. This chart just breaks down the gross value added of the financial sector as between the labor bit, which is the red bit, and the returns to capital bit, which is the blue bit. And in driving the behavior through this century, it's very clear that both were in the party. Both benefited, both, both labor and capital in finance benefited materially uh, from the boom we have been through. Breaking that down a bit, this looks in a bit more detail at the returns to, to labor employed in the financial sector over this period. The left-hand picture is, uh, is drawn from this very interesting study by uh, Philippon and Reshef that tries to measure the excess wages in finance relative to the economy as a whole. Uh, two big spikes there, one in the roaring 20s, a second uh, latterly as excess wages in finance have picked up materially above those that can be explained by fundamentals. The right-hand side picture looks at average wages across a set of sectors in the UK. Finance is, again, standout. What's true of labour is true of capital as well. So the left-hand side picture is a broadly based measure of the returns to capital in the financial sector. That's the red line. The blue line is the whole economy number. It's plain uh, from that picture we've seen something pretty spectacular as measured happening to the aggregate return on capital uh, in the financial system. The right-hand side picture is a somewhat narrower measure of the return to capital, in particular the return to holders of equity capital in banks. (coughs) Big structural break here, 1920 to 1970, uh, the return on equity in banking pretty much the same as the economy as a whole, and pretty much flatlining. Come the 70s, something dramatic happens. What is that something? The return on equity roughly trebles, and its volatility roughly trebles um, to levels way, way above uh, those in the economy uh, as a whole. So uh, we have a story here of uh, returns, of, in some sense, perhaps excess returns, to both the labor and the capital component within banking, what was it that was driving this? Was this indeed a solo measured productivity miracle or was it in fact something uh, more common a garden like increased risk taking? My story will be uh, that there's a lot to be said for the second part of that sentence. In other words, I think the available evidence points towards banks having pursued strategies, complementary strategies, that effectively risked up their balance sheet and it was the rise in reported reported returns was not mirrored in risk-adjusted returns when it came down to it. And the three strategies I'll say a word or two about, um, some of them very straightforward, some of them slightly more novel. Uh, The old one is leverage. The second one is uh, trading books or trading assets. And the third is the writing of deep out-of-the-money options. And these in combination led to a situation where headline returns to equity... To labor were flattered, um, but once you'd risk adjusted those, and when the fall came, uh, reality was revealed. In a sense, uh, the risk mirage was deluding us uh, into the productivity miracle having happened. Two pictures that to speak to that in aggregate terms the left hand side one looks at the ratio of banks' equity prices to the book value of their equity, so the price-to-book ratio uh, in banking. So back in around the early 1990s, that ratio of market price-to-book price was roughly around one. We then went through a dizzy 20-year period where that ratio went from one to three and a half, four, everywhere, everywhere uh, in the world. And since, of course, the crisis, we've seen the the descent to Earth, and that ratio now is back at around 1%. At pretty much every banking system uh, in the world. Another way of illustrating that even more starkly, and that's the, the right-hand side picture, is imagine, imagine you were sat here in 1900, uh, and imagine then you placed a bet, and the bet uh, went as follows. You, you, you went long financial sector equities, and you went short real economy equities, whole economy equities. Imagine you placed that hedged bet If finance and the real economy, the rest of the economy, grew in lockstep, that bet would be perfectly hedged, and you'd earn diddly squat. And indeed, between around 1900 uh, and 1990, you would indeed have earned uh, diddly squat. After that period, however, you can see from the pink line here, the returns to that notionally hedged bet uh, became astronomical, right up until the point where they weren't. As you see, uh, having reached uh, a return, cumulative return of 10,000%, uh, subsequently we're back now to roughly, uh, roughly, uh, roughly around base. With hindsight, uh, these returns uh, were illusory and risk-driven. So Let me speak to the risk drivers. One is the age-old one, which is balance sheet growth and leverage, spectacular balance sheet growth in both the UK in particular, but elsewhere. Two... So for a UK bank balance sheets in relation to GDP, flatlined for a century and then rose roughly tenfold in a generation. The US, a bit less dramatic, but nonetheless, the direction of travel, much the same. That balance sheet growth was uh, debt-propelled. So left-hand picture, capital ratios, the reciprocal of leverage, if you like, in secular decline from pretty much the middle of the uh, 19th uh, century, uh, latterly, during this century, we saw, if anything, leverage ramping up to even, even greater heights. The right-hand picture speaks to that. It was, it was a global uh, phenomenon. And that global phenomenon pretty much fully accounts for that rise in the return on equity that I showed a few slides ago. So uh, this, decomposes, this chart decomposes that return on equity into the bit that can be explained by Leverage, by gearing, and that part that can be explained by return on assets. And the key point here is the yellow line, which is the return on assets, was, if anything, over this period, falling. So at the same time as return on equity was going up, the return on banks' assets, some truer measure of the productivity of those institutions, was falling, if anything, falling. And Of course, since the crisis, it's fallen uh, even further. So this was a story in which... Uh, returns to capital and labor were to some extent flattered by bearing greater risk through greater leverage. And the particular assets uh, that accounted for a good chunk, and Adair touched on this, of that balance sheet growth were trading book assets. Right hand side picture tells us that uh, those banks with bigger trading books tend to be those with bigger leverage. Why were trading book assets? Particularly attractive as a place to park your money and expand your book. Two reasons, one Adair mentioned risk weights set by regulators were chronically too low. We know that now uh, with hindsight. The second reason was that stuff held in the trading book was marked to market. And that can work like an absolute dream when the going is good. So when the tide is coming in, it is lifting all boats. It is lifting the mark-to-market value of your trading book, which you can then book as profits, profits today. And, of course, that's what many people did. And as long as asset prices were rising, as I say, this strategy uh, worked for everyone. Everyone was a winner and everyone had prizes. And that's one of the reasons that profits were inflated across the system as a whole. The problem was uh, when the tide changed direction. Uh, In particular... Um, some of the assets that were invested in in the trading book were so-called structured credit products, the deep out-of-the-money options. They took a variety of types. It could include, for example, subprime loans. They are, in a sense, a deep out-of-the-money option. What do you do? You write a really risky contract, where on the tail of the distribution. You harvest the interest income from lending to a risky borrower, and that works, again, brilliantly, right up until the point where it works terribly. Ditto writing CDS insurance. What does that mean? That means you harvest the premium income in the good times and then you are killed uh, flat dead uh, when default comes. And that was, These were precisely some of the deep out of the money option bets that were taken by the banking system in their trading books. Uh, these two charts speak to that. Uh, the left hand side one is structured credit products, the Right-hand side one is CDS. Uh, the red line uh, is the path implied by Moore's Law, uh, which is the, the rate of capacity increase of semiconductors. And it's clear that for some of these products, um, structured credit products, uh, growth comfortably, comfortably outpaced uh, Moore's Law. When the tide turned, uh, what we saw was those credits, credit products being uh, downgraded very materially. The left-hand side picture speaks to that. The blue line there shows the downgrades of those instruments. And the losses then manifest. This is the blue part of the right-hand picture. Most of the main losses in the trading book were then felt on these structured uh, credit uh, instruments. So a story uh, of increased risk-taking, sourced in balance sheet expansion, um, amplified uh, by use of the trading book, and given a further kicker by the use in particular of structured uh, instruments with these deep, out-of-the-money payoff schedules. The disguised risk most of the time, disguised risk most of the time, it pushed risk where into the tail so that uh, during the great moderation, all seemed to be well, I say right up until the point until it wasn't. Let me uh, conclude on some of this, because another way of cutting the cake again would be to dig into the specific business lines that the financial system undertakes and ask whether the particular components of that that look odd, that look peculiar. And I'm benefiting here from uh, from JP Morgan's um, uh, willingness to to decompose in their own annual accounts what the precise sources uh, of their profits are. In particular, uh, what I give here is some sector-specific returns on equity across uh, J.P. Morgan Chase's uh, balance sheet. They're a universal bank. Uh, I'm not saying they're fully representative. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a, I thought it was a revealing uh, insight into just where the money is made, which are the most rec- lucrative of the business lines. And one of the things that struck me when I first looked at this chart was they weren't remotely in the places I expected them. Okay, so look at the bits at the end, the sort of dull stuff, the sort of the stuff you think of as being largely riskless, like asset management and treasury and security services, custodial services, J.P. Morgan making mint from those returns an equity of forty, fifty percent, Where some of the riskier bits, some of the um, uh, so the investment banking bits, were in relative terms uh, quite modest. This picture, for me, and given the time, let me uh, let, let me skip on a bit. This, for me, um, raises some big questions, some of which are being tackled already. Um, uh, on retail financial services, why is it it's as profitable as it is? Uh, we heard yesterday that the Treasury Committee, uh, the new Treasury Committee, will be looking into um, this aspect of the financial infrastructure, other structural impediments. Is there a problem with free and credit banking? Currently, uh, we're a world away of customers being charged the true marginal cost for the retail financial services they're providing. Uh, is that a good equilibrium or a bad one? Secondly, uh, some of the activities here, although riskless, uh, appear, to be, uh, appear to have significant payoffs. So, a good example here is, is MA and advisory activity. Uh, largely riskless. We know that most MA is value destroying. So, how is it that can justify a, a return of uh, 3 or 4%? Question mark. We know, for example, that the OFT are looking into the, uh, the cost of underwriting services uh, in the UK. So, some questions there, some structural questions which are right on the boundary between prudential regulation on the one hand and competition policy on the other. Let me wrap up. We have undergone a second golden era of finance, which on the face of it looks like a productivity miracle. I've painted a picture that that takes something of the gloss off that, I think, in that underpinning that golden age were excess returns to both labor and capital in finance, that at root were driven by uh, risk rather than productivity. I think looking into the public policy space, and we'll discuss this much more during the course of today, there are some clear lessons. There are some some lessons for statisticians when thinking about how best to capture risk, how how best to capture the contribution of finance. There are some lessons for investors who are thinking how best to evaluate. In some ways, it's a real perversity that investors in banks focus so much on return on equity and too little on return on assets. And thirdly, uh, for regulators, uh, there's some real questions about the rules they impose and whether they can better capture some of the true systemic risks that look to have been such a big driver of the behaviors we've seen through this century. Let me stop there.